Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. We are here today with Samuel Soutzer who is a, a behaviour change expert uh, but is also best known for his work in curating and putting out the Habit Weekly newsletter which has got loads of great content for people from across industry, academia, uh, students and anyone really with a passing interest in behavioural science. Now it's we're bang smack in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, We're in the UK recording this and we are in lockdown at the moment. But I wanted to put this out because we actually recorded it in November. Um, And we've we've done some COVID specials with Jim McManus and with Susan Mickey. So you can check those out uh, if you look at our back catalogue. But I wanted to put out the Sam Seltzer interview because we did it in November and it's a dose of normality. I want to keep getting these shows out. I've got some great interviews already um, recorded. So I'm going to continue with the monthly release of these podcasts. And I really enjoyed speaking to Sam and listening to this. Um, seems like an age ago now that we did it, but listening to the to it and cutting it together has been really enjoyable because I think Sam's got a, a really good real world approach to the way he's he sort of um, curates his content and his approach generally when he's doing his consultancy work. Uh, So just to remind you, we're doing this on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network and um, it's a great time to join. It's £25 if you're working, £10 if you're not working or if you're a student. And, you know, for people who are working from home, this is a great time to actually connect with other people across this this network and uh, speak to them about behavioural science, how you can use it in your work. Uh, if you're interested in that, then you can you can go on to bsphn.org.uk to join, but also just look at the content that they've got on there. Um, if you've been furloughed at the moment or if you're working from home and you've got some time, you can still do training and this is a really good opportunity to do that. So we can make use of the time we've got during this lockdown um, coronavirus period. As ever, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore HH with any comments or suggestions or people that you want to hear interviewed, uh, things you want to hear on our coronavirus specials. So do get in touch via Twitter or add me on LinkedIn, uh, Stuart King. But now we'll go over to the show. So I'm excited today to be joined by Sam Saltzer. Uh, Sam is an experienced behavioral strategist and habit expert, having worked with organizations across Europe, Australia, and North America. Sam specializes in the digital health space, and his work involves applying insights from behavioral science and behavioral economics to build user-centered and habit-forming products and services. Sam's based in Sweden, but he also spends time in the US and Asia and works hard to be at the forefront of the emerging field of behavioral design. Sam's a frequent keynote speaker and co-author of Nudging in Practice, helping organizations make it easy to do the right thing, as well as the curator of the popular newsletter, Habit Weekly. Welcome to the Real World Behavioral Science Show, Sam. Thank you, good to be here. Um, So we'll just get straight into it. So if you can um, tell us a little bit about your journey, Sam, and uh, how did you get to where you are now? Sure. So I had, you could say, a little bit more orthodox journey than maybe some of your previous guests. So when I started to really get into what I do today, I was actually ending a bachelor's degree in finance and accounting. Okay. And so at the time, I was research assistant for a professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he started to smuggle me books on behavioral economics. To smuggle you books? Yeah. So it's like, okay. <laughs> it sounds more shady than probably was, but yeah. uh, it's just kind of like, hey, you really should check this out. And, and after reading the books, I really looked, obviously, at the world in a very different way. And I thought it was a very fascinating way to see the world. And so just as I thought I had kind of figured out my life, I realized I was going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the journey from there to here has been a little bit up and down, a little bit tips and turvy, I think you call it. Yeah. And so um, I started looking for a job where I can apply uh, insights from behavioral science and mm-hmm. behavioral economics, but I found that quite hard, and especially living in Australia at the time. That was before the recent boom uh, in, in behavioral sciences and, and how, behavioral, how far back are we going? Uh, about, about 10 years or okay. so. 
Yeah. Seven eight seven eight years. Yeah. Um, and so when I was looking around for for kind of possible jobs, I couldn't really find any jobs that was searching or or were going to allow me to apply the kind of things I wanted to uh, work on. And so so I uh, pretty much had the choice either to go into more academia to study some more or go into the field and do my best uh, with what I had and, and see if I could apply behavioral science in some way at least. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I decided to do. And so um, I, I worked in a more kind of a, called a financial consulting or corporate finance kind of role initially. Um, <laughs> didn't really enjoy that at all, but on the mm-hmm. side I was kind of starting to build more and more of a, my own consulting practice uh, mm-hmm. as I was learning more. And so one thing for me as well that could be interesting to, to say is that while I started with behavioral economics as kind of the foundation for, for applying uh, the work I do, one of the things that I noticed is that it was kind of a two-step journey uh, with behavioral economics. So first, it was kind of a journey of enlightenment where I felt like, wow, this mm. is such an amazing way to look at the world. Oh, my God, I have all these amazing new uh, tools and tricks and, and ways to kind of change behavior for good. But then as I was getting into more complex behavior change problems, I noticed that, well, I've been giving you a tool now. I have kind of a hammer. And looking at the problems, I noticed there were not only nails, but screws and bolts and yeah, yeah. all these different other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I began to do more and more so as I was applying more of this stuff, is to get into the nitty gritty of more traditional behavioral science and habit research and, and so on. And I think that's really, I think, where I struck a chord of becoming what I am today to a certain degree because I was really fascinated with habits and habits connected to the intention action gap. Yeah, yeah. So for some people that might not, not be aware of the concept of this intention action gap, it's that we obviously have a lot of good intentions. Mm-hmm. We, we know what we're supposed to do in terms of health and we want to eat good, exercise a lot, sleep well and so on. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we might fail to live up to those intentions. We might fail to take action. And that obviously is very true for habits where people have great intentions to form habits, but it's easier said than done, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was really fascinated of that challenge of how can we design products and services and solutions that's, supporting people to uh, to uh, overcome that gap and, and build yeah, yeah. long-term long-term paper changes well i mean i work in weight management so that's pretty much what we see day in day out you know that that intention action gap um, and so you, you said to the journey to where you are today so what where are you today what what is it you're doing now sure, sure. so today i mainly consult organizations uh, in the kind of digital health space mm-hmm. and so it's a little bit varied but it's both startups and a little more larger organizations on how to design mostly digital solutions that's somehow targeting towards behavior change. So mm. it can be anything from a work on products where it's been helping patients, patients go into surgery to stop smoking and drinking okay. um, with, as you mentioned, I worked on projects in terms of eating and how we can create digital products that's going to support people to support people to eat better and, and, create better food habits. Mm-hmm. And so uh, quite a wide range of, of uh, challenges, but all relating to mostly health and, and behavior change related to health. And so that's some, most of what you're doing at the moment. But one of the things that I um, became aware of you through was the um, Habit Weekly newsletter. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What, where did that come from? How, you know, what is it for? And how's it going? Who, 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 should, who should look it up? Sure. So uh, honestly, how we started was that I read a lot of behavioral science and behavioral design content. Mm-hmm. And it's a good time for the field because more and more content is available and, and more and more good podcasts and articles and, and uh, media is being kind of delivered every week. But I felt overwhelmed that <laughs> how can I make sure that I don't miss out? How can I make sure that all of the good stuff doesn't really slip through the, the kind of the internet somehow and, and there's yeah. some resources. So how can I make sure that I don't miss out? And, and so I was looking for a place where someone would kind of 
put together all of the best content in terms of best articles, best podcasts, best videos from the week. But I couldn't really find that. And the stuff that existed was mostly created by a company or organization that was done as a way to market their own product and so on. Yeah. And so, so for me, it was kind of like, okay, maybe I should create in the world what I wish existed. And, and so it really started with me posting some links on, on LinkedIn to see if there was interest. And so I did that for a couple of weeks. I think the second week I did it, I, was, I said, well, since I'm doing this now for a second week, maybe I should call it something. And so I call it Habit Weekly because I, I guess I was associated with habits a lot of times. So that's something that people already associated with me by. And then mm. I was going to do this weekly. So it was a natural name. And then I think in the third week, people started asking to have a mailing list created. And so I created a mailing list. And so that's kind of how it started. And so now, uh, pretty cool. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of people around the world. Uh, and I think now it's about almost 100 countries uh, that are following this weekly updates on the best from, from behavioral design and behavioral science. And so I think I have chosen to target a little bit wider audience, not only people that are very experienced in space. So I have people that everything from kind of the leaders in the space that are kind of looking for new inspiring content for them. But I'm also trying to get people that are new to the field to get kind of an, a, an easy step in so they yeah. kind of get started in thinking about the stuff we do. And I think that's, it's, it's really clear that that's what you're aiming at because the way I think of it is that you've got, uh, and it's really, it's really useful, by the way, um, on a personal note um, for me, but also awesome. other people that I know. And, and I'm talking about people from, um, so, so we do this on the behalf of the uh, Behavioral Science and Public Health Network. Uh, and they were excited that we that we picked up an interview with you because they, a lot of them are in, you know are using your your uh, newsletter. So it's it's definitely getting to a mix of people. But I think there's content there for people um, who are starting out. Like you said, there's sort of videos, blog posts, and all that type of stuff. But then there's your. I, I remember recently you did a hundred um, best books in in um, behavioral science, and. I, you know, looking through the book, I was quite heartened to know that I'd read a lot of those books actually. So I, I felt quite good about that. Um, but I, awesome. I, but I also agreed. I thought, yeah, that, you know, there's some really accessible things in there for people starting out, but there's also one of the, one of the things I think is most valuable about that is whilst you've got that for people who are starting out and people who are sort of growing into it and looking and more and more, it's, it's filtering content. So they don't have to go and do that themselves, which is what you were trying to solve in the first place. And I think it's that organic nature of that that makes it so useful. Um, but then I think that even for people who are sort of academics, it, it, it provides a level of diversity. So they're not just focusing on just academic articles in one area, but it actually, if they, if they are, are getting that, it might just prompt them to look at something else like someone's views from industry on a blog or whatever it is, you know, video on X, Y, or Z. I think it actually has, it gives diversity to people who are already in the field, but accessibility to people who are new to or interested in the field. So I totally agree. I, I think it's, I think it's doing brilliant work. So uh, well done on, on getting it off the ground. And I love the fact that it comes from that organic sort of, well, this was a problem I'm experiencing. So uh, I'm going to try and create in the world what I wish existed. So I think that's the, that's the, you know, the mother of lots of inventions like that. Um, mm. it, it comes from that sort of place of a, you, you recognize the pain that you tried to then, then fix. So yeah, it's great. Um, so awesome. I'm very happy to hear, hear that it's drug record with some of your colleagues as well. Yeah, no, a lot of people I've, I've spoken to are, are big fans of it. They, they sort of, you know, it's, I think it's one of them things that you wouldn't know you wanted until it was there. And then all of a sudden you're like, this is really useful. I'm glad it's, you know, I'm glad it just pops up every week. Um, mm. It's always something that I give a bit of time to, to just sort of flick through and see if there's anything that's sort of sparked any new ideas for us uh, in, you know, in, in our uh, in busybodies or uh, when I'm talking to other uh, people in, in the BSPHN. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really useful tool for people um, mm. and keep up the good work with that one. Um, but obviously, I, to move us on a little bit, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about um, you being involved in the behavior change industry. You're obviously uh, on the industry side, um, mm. having come from a sort of research-based background, I suppose. But what, how, how do you think behavioral science and behavior change is being used in the industry right now? 
Sure. So I think it's still very early going. And so it's a very young field. And I think it's clear that we're still lagging in terms of applying what we know from research into mm-hmm. practice. And I was just talking to someone today about this. And I think it's, it is a challenge sometimes in that if you go for the full behavioral science or behavioral design approach, it can be quite intimidating for some organizations or companies uh, because you're not only changing how they maybe design the solution, but also how they think about how to gather the data and the problem. And also a lot of times talk about testing and experimenting all these kind of things. Yeah. And so on, a, on their own, like doing user research is quite new. Uh, designing based on kind of behavioral design or behavioral science principles is quite new. And then experimenting and testing and iterating and scaling in that yeah. fashion is also quite new. And so we all kind of bring that into one, one kind of uh, way of working or, or a solution of sorts, a cohesive solution. It can be intimidating. And I think it's, we're still very early in the sense of being able to prove that it works. And yeah. so there's some people that have done an amazing work, both in the UK and, and in the US, for example, with the Incest team, for example, in the UK, who've, who've, who've started to have a lot of case studies to show, well, this works. And, and they were early in showing the kind of the one-time behavior changes uh, work. So we can mm-hmm. manipulate small things with maybe a little bit less cost, cost interventions, yeah. and still make a big impact. Yeah. And then you're having more and more examples of the more kind of complex challenges. I think you had uh, Amy from, from Madpal uh, on yeah. before. Yes, and so, yeah, she's great. And they're doing great work with more kind of the complex, kind of similar things that I do as well, like the more complex behavior changes and, and how, how that works in, in different areas. And so mm. I think we just have to be humble that it's still very early. And so it's, I think it's natural for us to now little bit struggle uh, to to get a footing. I think coming from Scandinavia, it's a little bit different here because it's still even newer here. And so right. we've had a little bit of a push with failure, <laughs> winning the Nobel Prize, and Nobel Prize being given out here in Stockholm. Yeah, yeah. It gave a little bit of a special kind of significance to nudging and so on. What are the best practices because you've been in a few different sort of situations and and organizations as you mentioned what are the best practices you've come across in terms of um, behavioral science and and how it's applied in the industry sure well it's a really good question and so what i what i would say which is maybe a little bit of a strange thing for me to say is that i'm not a really big fan of consultants and so currently that's definitely a weird thing for you to say because you are a consultant (laughs) yes Uh, but i i think it's a little bit of kind of like a necessary evil right now within the field mm-hmm. where I think it's really important for this to be more and more integrated within organizations yeah. and not to be reliant on, for example, honestly, someone like me, because yeah. I think it's, it's a really important thing to, to have. And so uh, I can give some examples where I think it's, it's been done well. So there's some different ways to look at this. So one really interesting dimension of this is when does behavioral science or behavioral design come in and so one example of when it can be very good to have it initially mm-hmm. is there's two really good apps here in scandinavia mm-hmm. and so one is called hi alex and one is called shim and uh, or shim just changed the name to enjo and so both of these apps are created by people with a either psychologist or behavioral science background as startup founders. Yeah. And so they partner, they always, they have people that are experienced with the tech side of things as well, mm-hmm. but they started with, with the kind of behavioral design fundamentals when they started. And I'm quite blown away with these solutions because it's clear that from the start, that's been a big part of it. So instead of trying to force the behavioral science as kind of some form of, square peg in a round hole mm-hmm. at the once you've already created your solution they have built a solution from the start with these kind of frameworks and especially impressive with angel because they are a mental health app and so and also focusing on using a, a chatbot to support people with mental health right right and so 
I knew the founder and I, I, I um, when I first heard about this project, I was a little bit skeptical because I didn't really think that a chatbot could perform to even close to the standard of a psychologist. But then looking at the, um, the reviews and also inter- inter- interacting with the app, I was blown away. And, and I think one of the most important things there was that they had the behavioral science from the start. Yeah. And so I think with certain problems, it can be really beneficial to really, from the start, either have a co-founder or bringing someone in very early that's going to be helping with that. And so you see that with things like, I was going to mention Omada Health in the US. Yeah. So they, they're working very closely with behavioral scientists. And, and I asked that from kind of a mm. early start, I had a big psychologist and behavioral scientist presence within their in their processes. They also look like a really fun company, actually, as well, when you, when you look at their yeah. offices and stuff. It's like exactly. a great place to work. Yeah, and that's obviously important as well. Yeah. And, um, and so they're a good example of that in the US. It's interesting when you look at later stages where, okay, if you're a really big, well-established company, you're not going to be able to restart. So obviously, you still should look to apply some behavioral science and there's still really good opportunities to do so. And so it seems when we look at companies that are doing the, that more now, for example, like Walmart in the US mm-hmm. are doing mm-hmm. it more and more so. And um, knowing some of the people there, I know that it's been a big thing, both in terms of how they've looked at it from initially, how they were gonna structure the, the stores to support the customers and apply behavioral science there. Mm-hmm. But then realizing, wait, we have, 3 million employees or something. Maybe we can apply some of this behavioral science. Oh, right, okay. In, uh, and in what did they do then? Did they, did they do something with the, the employees first then? Yeah, it was a lot of work there. I think about 60 or 70% of the work actually ended up being internal focused and, and seeing how they can make sure that the well-being and health of the employees is better because that's okay. obviously going to translate into better customer service and better customer experience and so on. Yeah, sort of getting your own house in order almost before you start on the stores. Yeah. Great. Okay, fantastic. That's some, that's some great examples. Thanks for those, Sam. That's great. Um, and so one of the things that I think your work does really well is translates into the real world, but I'm interested in how you think it translates into the real world. So what is it, what is it that you're um, doing? And I, I mean in your consultancy and in Habit Weekly. So how, how does that all translate to the real world in your mind? So what I am really passionate about is looking at it from a kind of a first principle point of view, mm-hmm. we call it like fundamentals point of view. And so I think it's tremendously important to be able to see the world with the more nuanced understanding that behavioral science and behavioral design can allow. And so what I try to teach both through my consulting engagement, but also when I do public speaking mm-hmm. or teaching is that I'm trying to always focus on, okay, how can I transcend the fundamentals? Because once you start to understand some of the fundamentals of, for example, how habits form, mm-hmm. then it's almost like you get a new set of glasses and you see that I think we're quite similar here because I know a little bit of the work you do as well in terms of when it comes to this stuff in the real world, it comes to experimenting mm-hmm. and it comes to testing it and understanding what works for me. And so once you understand of kind of you see the world as this little bit like Neo and Matrix all of a sudden you see it from this kind of habit perspective in, in terms of these different fundamentals in that I have to make sure that I have to take maybe these four or five boxes and I can then test an experiment and then if something fails I can always check and say okay well yeah I it probably failed because of this or because of that and then you yeah. can reiterate and you can improve and so I think that's when it's exciting to bring it to the real world when you're not only trying to get people to understand the kind of the surface level stuff that's flashy and cool, mm. but when you're trying to help people and companies to understand the more surf forming deep, deeper fundamental things, because yeah. then all of a sudden it becomes more long-term and it becomes more, I think, likely to succeed because again, nothing is going to be able to work the same for everyone. And so, to some extent, you're going to have to experiment. And so it's really important to, to do that. And it's hard to experiment if you don't understand the fundamentals. And so I think 
it's kind of self <laughs> self-enforcing or self-enforcing yeah. yeah no i like that I, I really like the idea of the uh, seeing the matrix thing it's, it's certainly something i've said actually myself um, internally okay, cool. and then you realize yeah. that loads of people in, in uh, our office haven't seen the matrix which was more mind-blowing okay. <laughs> that was more mind-blowing to me than anything else but it's, i suppose a sign of the times so so you've been around um in in industry and you've been um supporting people what what's i'm interested actually what sort of feedback do you get from the habit weekly uh, i see a lot of good stuff on on linkedin um but what mm. sort of feedback do you get from people well it's pretty amazing and i think that's it's a little bit to say this but it's definitely been one of the major reasons where week in week out it can be a little bit of a drudgery to put the or it's at least a lot of work to put together yeah. the, the, the yeah. newsletter. But every week I receive some form of positive message, at least, or often more mm. from people. And it's a little bit mixed. It's, it's fun. It's, if I would categorize it, it's either people that are maybe really passionate about this, but are feeling that they're alone and that they might be based in Nicaragua or something. Mm, mm. So they might be based in a place where maybe this field hasn't really got a foothold. And so from feeling like they have no one to interact with or or learn from, they all of a sudden feel like they have a really reliable source of getting Mm. some insights from. Uh, So I think that's a really big, uh, a lot of of people sending messages from different uh, kind of places from the world. And then you have the more kind of students. And so you have people that are starting to study. And so I had a really lovely message today, actually, from a, from a girl who's early in her studies and um, mentioning how it complemented her, her studies at university very well because mm. she was both getting that kind of the real world view of, of the field and also getting that kind of academic side of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then probably what I'm a little bit more biased to, which is also really fun as well, is to get the practitioners that are already kind of quite established and that feel that this brings some form of either brings a new perspective, brings some new tools, Mm. brings a new way of looking at things um, and inspiration. And so to be able to get those and serve all of those, it's it's quite quite cool to to get all of those messages. I, I can see that it looks it looks no. really rewarding to to get all that information out there. I'm I'm sure loads of people find it really useful. As I said at the beginning of the show, I, I was I was particularly pleased that our first podcast, which is I presume how well it's how we met actually on online, mm-hmm. um, was featured in it. Um, I think I think I knew about it before, but um, I wasn't as interested until until we got featured in it, and then <laughs> and then all of a sudden I, I really looked at it and thought actually this is great. Um, now this is one of the questions could this mm-hmm. one when this goes out it won't be going out for a while yet but when this goes out will this feature in the habit weekly or is it too is it too much to put your own interview in there as sort of content of the week yeah so it's a little bit of fine balance there and i think yeah. i uh i probably have it in there but it i'm in. not sure yeah well, yeah, so, so really this is not so much, obviously I'm a curator, so I'm trying to not be too biased in terms of putting my own stuff in there. Mm-hmm. What I've put in there as kind of my selection is the 100 books, for example, because that's something that I've created really to give back to the community because, mm-hmm. again, I felt there was a lot of great books in the, in the space. Mm-hmm. I honestly didn't think there was going to be that many books, but as I was starting to put together a list, that's when I realized, like, wow, there's so many great books. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate because most people may be naturally exposed to 10% of those books. Yeah. And, and, and maybe some of the more, yeah. more complex end of that. I mean, I, I really like mm. Nudge and Misbehaving and um, Thinking Fast and Slow. They're obviously mm. core texts in the field. But I mean, it might, I, might, I might not be as clever as everyone else in, in the industry, but they're a lot harder going for, for me, for example, than mm. say... Um, some of Dan Ariely's work, which I think is a much more gentle introduction. I go on about Dan quite a lot, but he's, I think mm. he's just got a quite a humorous and gentle introduction into the sort of field, into the behavioral economic side. And then you can sort of make mm. your way from there into the other, into some of the other more complex uh, um, books. Um, and that I certainly found that. And, and, I, and I, 
sort of liked looking through the hundred book list um, at, at the sort of some of the ones that are in there to sort of bring people along, like the power of moments. Is that was that in there? I think it was um, yes. by Chip and Dan yes. Heath. Uh, mm-hmm. Another great, great book. Really, really mm. sort of turned a light on with me in terms of, I mean, really in terms of how we deal with people every day. We've always wanted mm. to delight people, mm-hmm. uh, internally for our staff. Um, at busybodies we we used a lot of that to try and curate their experiences around peak moments because that if that's how people are really remembering events and and you know if that's what they're they're basing their happiness memories etc on then we could actually do a really good job of curating that for people so this stuff i think really does change change people's practice a lot so it's great that you're curating all of that in one place for people Mm. yeah what was fun with the guide as well is that I wanted to be a little more ambitious than just putting together my own recommendations. And so I reached out to the field. And as you probably know as well, I think the field is quite generous. And I think people are very eager to give back and so on. And so with the guide, there are obviously some books that I hadn't read as well. And that's because I, I got recommendations from actually the Heat Brothers, uh, among others. Right. And, and, and actually both um, Dan Ariely and Thaler recommended uh, books as well. Amazing. And so, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a list that is also having some really, if you're just curious about what book Dan recommended, for example, mm-hmm. you can check out the list as well. Um, can you give us a, a sneak preview of what that is? I actually don't remember which one Dan recommended. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to come back and do that at the end. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Okay, that's great. So, so um, could you tell me what it is that you are most excited or curious about in behavioral science or behavior change right now? Sure. So I think for me, I'll come back to a little bit how I started this. So for me, it's, it's habits. And so I think we are in an interesting convergence with technology where things are starting to slowly, you know, we talk about machine learning and AI, Mm. but we're still not really using it. The things we're using mostly is kind of <laughs> some form of advanced statistics, if you're honest. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're getting closer. And I think when it comes to these very complex behavior change problems, like building habits, for example, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've been part of a project now where it's an EU project where I've been behavior change strategist. And uh, I think they also branded me as persuasive technology advisor. Uh, the project has looked at how can we support patients going to surgery that have a pre-existing smoking or drinking behavior. And, and it's a big EU project. And the kind of fundamental thing about this project was that, okay, we're going to create a solution that's going to be good, obviously. That's hopefully going to be as good as some form of intervention program we have today. Mm-hmm. But the core thing is that it's going to be better over time. And so as really, really solid backend uh, models and, and, um, and call it machine learning uh, that's promoting what I do. And so putting together the behavior change techniques and having that over time leveraged by better understanding what works and what doesn't work, mm-hmm. that's, that's going to be the key. And I think you being from the UK, there's a lot of great work with uh, human behavior change projects. Uh, at UC- I think it's based off of um, uh, UCL, right? Um, and Susan Mitche. I think yes. is one of the lead researchers. She is, yeah. And so, so they're doing amazing work in this space and, and categorizing different behavior change studies mm-hmm. and, and trying to make sure that it's going to be easier and easier to, to, to bridge that gap between technology and, and scalability and, and what we do. And, uh, and so I hope that, and, and I think especially with this, it's going to be very interesting to see how it might be a little bit how people use Alexa today to buy their groceries or something. Yeah. And I think our job is going to be more and more interacting with technology and, and, and kind of forming hypotheses, but then getting more and more insights from the, the data to see what works and doesn't work and then modify that as well. And so I think that's going to be an interesting thing that's going to emerge more and more. And especially when it relates to habits, that's kind of what I'm really, really excited about to see how, how we can better understand habits. Cause it's another, I think there's also a UK study where, uh, Philippa Lally and at all uh, her co-researchers wrote a paper a couple of years ago, which is one of those great papers in, in habit research mm-hmm. where they uh, tried to understand how long does it take to form a habit. And, um, 
I don't know if you heard, the, heard about this paper, but they realized that, well, it takes about anything from 18 days to 254 days. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and so that doesn't really say much, because obviously what you realize, well, it depends on the habit and it depends on the person. And yeah. so, so I think that's what's going to be interesting to see more and more. How can we better understand what behaviors are going to take X amount of time, but also in what context and with what people and, and so on. It's interesting because I, I've worked with, well, a few thousand people uh, to change their behavior in, in uh, the weight context, adults, children, families. And pe- there's like this, there's this information out there. Um, I don't know where it specifically came from, but there's like a, there's like a, um, a heuristic out there that, oh, habits. Oh yeah, because habits, they say it to me all the time, habits take... Um, and then they come up with whatever number they've heard to form, don't they? Oh, habits. Yeah. They say if you can keep a habit for six weeks or whatever, then, then it, then it's takes and that's it. And I'm like, well, yeah. And I'm sort of having conversations with them where I'm thinking if I, if I go along with that, hmm. am I, does that mean if they believe that and I go along with it, will that help them actually see it through after six weeks and i'm sort of debating whether or not to sort of say oh well yeah if that's what the evidence says you know not knowing that that's what the evidence says and and then trying to use that that sort of in their mind if you can get them to six weeks then maybe they they then have this sort of um almost pygmalion effect of they believe it's possible after that period then because they've done it for six weeks it's always an interesting people have people all, all have this sort of notion inside them about how long a habit takes to form uh, and then i I, I can't remember where I was reading it or who I was speaking to recently. It might've been, might've been Tim Chadbourne, um, who was saying there was no real consensus on that. And, and it wasn't, you know, there is no golden amount of time. It's, it's myriad factors that can all interact and, and completely confound whatever the science has, has said in the past. So, uh, it's mm. interesting. I must read that paper. Actually, I haven't read it. What, who, who was it? Sorry. Did you say? So Philippa Lally is the mm. main author of the paper. Right. So L A L L Y. And um, actually, I know a little bit about that number you're mentioning. So I think one of the two numbers that's still not a lot is 21 days or 30 days mm-hmm. from habits. And that mainly comes from a cosmetic surgeon from the US in the 40s, I think. Wow. Okay. And so I think this is the weirdest thing. I, it's still a little bit unclear how that got people thinking that it's a habit that takes that time, but it's. It was about 21 days or 30 days until your facial reconstruction was, <laughs> wow. was uh, yeah, it was, it was something like that or some form of cosmetic, cosmetic um, surgery. I think that can be something that to fact check as well, because I'm not 100% sure, but that's the, the one thing I re- remember looking into this number more and more was that it had a very ridiculous uh, source initially. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, it's a little bit of a tricky thing in the beginning when you, I also had similar conversations with, with people and um, it's a lot of it, I guess is managing, managing expectations. And so you want to give people hope in that they mm-hmm. can make behavior change, behavior changes that last. And it's very, maybe disheartening to tell them that it's going to take 240 <laughs> days. Yeah. That's <laughs> but but then, yeah, but then you don't want to give full hope but by saying 21 days, for example. Mm. And so I say usually that, okay, we know that it depends. Uh, we know that, well, 30 days can be a good start, but it depends on the, the behavior you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And it depends on obviously how, I think one of the factors that people often forget is the being something that's repeated in a stable context. And so for a good example, I have... Um, Duolingo, I don't know if you know the yes, Duolingo. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm learning Spanish. And um, I, I currently have a streak of, I think, the streak is 278 days or something. Okay, so you must be proud. So, very proud. But at the same time, I noticed, so they have a feature in the app that's called Streak Freeze, that in case you, you miss a day, mm-hmm. the streak freezes. And as long as you do the next day, you can kind of recover your streak. Uh-huh, okay. And so I had this really weird experience for me at least where this was, I think four, four or five weeks ago when I, by that point I had almost like 250 day streak, but still over a week period, over a weekly period, 
I started to realize that I had triggered the streak freeze like three days of seven days in a week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, I've been doing this for 250 days. Why, <laughs> why, is the, why am I forgetting to do this? And what I noticed that I haven't really been strict in terms of using the app at a certain time of day. And so even though I use it every day, I've sometimes been using it on the bus to work or sometimes I've been using it while, you know, waiting for something or sometimes I'm using it as I wake up or sometimes mm-hmm. when I, before I go to sleep. Yeah. And so since the context hasn't been stable, there hasn't been a stable trigger to get me to use it. And, and so, so that's something that's, that's also a big factor, right? So yeah. it's not only saying like a X behavior times X amount of time, but it's also given that, that component as well. Okay, so that, that might answer my next question, actually, then, which is how do you use your knowledge of behavior change in your personal life? Is it, are you now uh, coming up with a new way to, to, to do your streaks with the context more in mind? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, that's always been something important in many of my personal self-experimentation. Self, self so um, I, for example, wanted to read more books and so I, I read about five to 10 books a year by that point. And so I wanted to read more and I ended up reading 125 books in a year. Wow. And that was purely based on, okay, thinking about it, what I know from, from applying kind of habit formation research into practice. And mm. one of the best things that it was that when I had a commute about 30, 30, um, sorry, I had a 30 minute commute. Mm-hmm. And so what I was very disciplined with the commute is that I never checked my phone. I had a Kindle with me. Right, and right. so all of those minutes were spent on the Kindle. Mm-hmm. And then I always had a Kindle with me as well. So while I was sometimes waiting for something else, or if I had a lunch and I was a little bit bored on lunch, during lunch, I took up the Kindle. And so that really was the main kind of key factor in, in having that stable, okay, I'm on the train, mm-hmm. pick up the Kindle and read yeah. Like it was a very stable trigger. Yeah. And, um, and so now, yeah, I've, I've re, re-engineered my, my Duolingo habit now. So now I do it at the same time every day. And I've noticed that it's no longer do I need as much of a reminding myself by an external trigger as a... The phrase of the streak thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I, but I can... I can uh, just myself. That's interesting. I, I really like the, um, to come back to the Geolingo thing. I like the, the streak thing because um, one of the, so, so I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment. I, my aim is to be in your top 100 once it's out and it should come out shortly after this, this podcast. Um, we're, we're recording this in November, but it won't come out till about March or April. Um, but I, but in writing the book, which is a real pain, um, but I'm, I sort of enjoy it and hate it at the same time. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I talk about is the, what the hell effect. Mm, and, awesome. um, yeah, cool. and, and, and that's what we do at work as well. I mean, we, we have these sort of three universal truths and, the, and, and this is pretty much what, what all, all, everyone we see goes through our programs who, who doesn't achieve their goals. It happens for these three universal truths, uh, that they're not as rational as they like to think. There's two selves, a planner and a doer. And when the planners plans don't live out in the lived experience of the doer, you end up at the, what the hell effect. So the, the idea that you would have this streak freeze rather than streak over means that you don't totally lose everything all in one go and go, oh, so I've loved, I might as well stop then. I really, I think that's, that sort of might not have been designed for that, but that for me is what sort of screamed out of that when you, when you were talking about it. Um, and there might even be a triggering of a sort of a loss aversion effect there where you nearly lost your streak, but actually you can get it back if you carry on. Mm, I, I think it's mm. smart. It's, I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying it there, but that's, that's, that's what it sort of said to me in the real world, in real world terms, uh, mm. when, you, when you were mentioning it. Um, and it's interesting to hear that you, you've now sorted your, your own um, <laughs> habits out. So it's good to know that it can work for you personally as well. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely on something there. And I think it's, it's definitely interesting as a general challenge if you're working in the real world with behavior changes that people are going to fail. Mm. People are going to, you know, me, you, whoever is going to try to do something, we're going to slip up. We're going to have a bad day, right? Yeah, yeah. And streaks can be really good to motivate people to stick to their kind of goal. But as you say, it can be really 
demotivating if you miss one day and then you have the what the hell effect yeah. and you give up your, your thing because you feel like, okay, now I've, I've lost it. Mm. I lost my streak. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's actually, I, I really like that component as well. And I think there's a lot of ways we can do that in, in making people uh, cut on an easy way to, to get back on track or, yeah. or a soft failure or something that they, they don't yeah. feel like they're failing because that's the working as well with what you do. I can imagine a lot of this has to do with, with eating and you eating is such a big part of, of, of life. And so, mm-hmm. you know, even though you had a plan to, okay, let's have, I'm going to have a salad uh, this Friday afternoon or evening for dinner. Then you end up going for after work with friends. Everyone is sharing a pizza or pizzas. Mm. And you're like, well, I'm just going to have one slice. And then yeah. you end up eating a pizza. And then you, you remember that, oh, I was supposed to have a salad. Mm. And then you have a little bit of different options here. And so if, if the plan or the solution that you're using is not really helping you to have a soft, <laughs> soft failure or, or get back, back on track easily, mm. uh, you're going to have, like you say, either you're going to have like the what the hell effect or it's a little bit of a not the easiest thing to remember about the abstination violation effect, which is just that it's, it applies to more of a social context that if you have someone that's accountable, you're accountable to, that you feel that you've let them down mm. and that you, you feel like, okay, either I have to lie to this person because mm. I have a personal trainer or someone who, who I promised I was going to have salad. Yeah, yeah. And so either you feel that you lied to someone, but then you're going to have this guilt and remorse over a long period of time. Or you might start ignoring that person because you don't want to tell the truth. To them. Yeah. And so I think it's really hard to build this in, but I think uh, kindness and trust, trying to build that into some form of mm. either if you have a, if you, if, even if you're a coach to have that as part, or if you have a solution that's like a digital solution, mm-hmm. to try to build that in as kind of a, not something that's going to make people feel bad about failing, but as kind of a way to, you know, support them and, and make mm. kind of rephrase that into something that they can make them stronger and, yeah. and, and make them better in the long run and stuff. Well, we, we sort of so that the, the theory that underpins this from our, from our perspective is called the habit before the habit for the reason that it, whilst we do deal with a lot of dietary stuff, really what we're mm. dealing with is habits and, we, and, you know, I mean, sociologically speaking, habitus is what, what I'm really sort of into at the minute. And, and, and I'm also interviewing Wendy Wills this week from um, University of Hertfordshire. And I know she's a Pierre Bourdieu fan. So we'll get really geeky about some sociology, <laughs> I know, at the, the end of this week. But the, the, I, th- I think it, this is why I was excited about interviewing you, really, because um, I, I had a feeling, even though I've only read some of, your, some of your stuff, because you actually put out a lot of content from other people, really, um, that, that we would share that, that real world view and, and, and what, what are we do on our, on our programs is, is run the experiment. And the reason that we call it running the experiment is because it, it sort of de-risks everything for people. When, when you know you're doing an experiment, it's mm. not quite such a big deal when you fail because you, you know going in, you're not going to get it all right straight away. And so we're trying to recontextualize for people what failure actually means. Failure doesn't mean um, not doing the thing you said because we, because we preface everything by saying, we're really bad at planning and mm. our plans very, very rarely, uh, you know, live out in the real world. And, and I, and I relate that back to, um, not to, not to people in the real world, but, but, but to Daniel Kahneman's work, you know, system one and system sure. two thinking, um, the plans that we're making, uh, are not as, as robust as we'd like to think. And there's lots of studies that, that sort of show that even if you, know you've planned badly and it goes wrong and then you get asked to plan again you still plan exactly the same way and say no no no, I'll just try harder this time and it just doesn't work mm. so mm. We, we try to recontextualize that for people so that we're we're dealing with really small decisions that limit future uh, choices basically that, that's what the habit before the habit is really based on is is running experiments where we work back in a habit loop to a, a, a sort of uh, a starting point that we can do together right there and then it might be texting it might be um setting up a, a reminder it, might, it could be anything um mm. and the idea is that that habit loop that we're trying to sort of build towards a, a desirable outcome will probably break down somewhere and and it does it's not getting to the outcome that matters it's learning from the failure so it's mm. it's a mindset shift from a fixed mindset of did i lose weight this week to a growth mindset of what did i learn that really works in the context of my real life because people are too obsessed about 
the outcome and not 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 i don't think as as interested as they should be in the in the process because uh, it's the process mm-hmm. that actually builds resilience builds learning and it actually does help to create habits that last so um yeah it was, I, I, that's what i took from what you just said because it resonated so heavily with what i've been writing about recently so um I'll, I'll be sure to send you a copy of the book i want it on the top 100 list so that's that's if it gets in habit weekly i'll be happy um, awesome yeah i look forward to reading it for sure <laughs> and i think um, uh, just want to add on to that as well. Kudos to you for doing it because I think it's very important. I think a lot of people, even in the field, overlook that part. And especially since a lot of time when we work with health problems, it's tricky because if people fail or feel like a failure, often they solve that by having, you know, if it's in this case, weight loss, obviously there can be a lot of issues with eating and, and maybe eating as a comfort food. And so if you're not helping people with managing their kind of, um, their, call it the failures, mm. it's going to be a very vicious cycle where they're going to feel like failures. They're going to maybe resort to eating unhealthy food because that's their comfort food. Yeah. And they're going to feel even worse and so on. And then you kind of, they've kind of lost track completely. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to give hats off to you because I think Thanks. it's really, really good to hear you doing that. Yeah, I, and, and thank you. And, and I think that failure is the, the big overlooked part of this, actually. And mm. I've worked in mm. health for a while, you know, for over a you know, decade, four, 15 years, something like that. And I just don't think we're managing to recontextualize what is probably one of the most important elements of helping people change behavior, which is, we plan differently to how we experience the world and that is going to cause failure. And then we have a reaction to failure. That's it. Like it's, it, we see it so clearly. If you spend time with people, which I ha- obviously have and, and the team that I work with have, it's all they talk about, you know, that, that in, in, in different versions of, of however they, they, they say it, they're saying the same thing. They're failing for these different reasons, but not, not learning enough to actually change their behavior. So we're trying to help them recontextualize that. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely send you a copy of that as soon as it's ready for, uh, for public consumption. Or maybe awesome. even before, if you don't mind reviewing before that, I might even send you an advanced copy to see what you make of it. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So um, we're coming to the end now, um, Sam. And I just wanted to gauge, um, because we've got listeners from... Uh, academia from some of whom are students some of whom are, are working in public health some of whom are in industry and it's really great I, I've had some feedback from people about um, enjoying hearing the advice of how to get into the field so if you were giving people some some advice now of how to get how to use behavioral science in their current jobs or how to get into the behavioral science behavioral insights field what would your advice be to them sure that's a great question so the first part of that question in terms of applying it to your current jobs, I think you should see it as something that shouldn't be too of a big challenge in terms of don't try to learn everything and try to think that you have to um, kind of become master of all of the research because there's a lot of research and it's going to take some time to really get into all of it. But, but start, I think, into kind of what we're talking about, get into that experimenting mindset in, in your work in terms of take inspiration from some of the maybe books you're exposed to, you talk about nudge, predictably rational. There's a lot of great kind of books that get you started into thinking of how can you apply behavioral science and then and then test and experiment to see how that can be used in your role. And and some things are gonna work and that's great. You're gonna get a lot of credit for for being in in YouTube and, and uh mm kind of a, a new thinker and then something is, is gonna like maybe don't pan out as, as you think and that's that's really part of everyone's journey in this field is that there's going to be a lot of lessons learned from hypotheses that weren't really realized yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and so so that's if you're in a role i think that's a really great way to start because i think honestly since we're such a new field a lot of people in the field are a little bit of color like renegades or or something where they've come in from some form of a little bit similar to me, maybe an orthodox way where there hasn't been like a clear road into the field. Mm-hmm. And so they started in uh, working color like as a dietitians, or they could be working in all areas. Maybe they worked more in, in policy before and they were exposed mm-hmm. to more and more data science and, and so on. And then they wanted to do more in full time with that. 
And so I think it's, it's a great way to, to start getting to the field as well if, you, if you're really good at, <laughs> even I was going to say like accounting, for example, like if, you, if you're really good in accounting and starting to apply uh, behavioral science in your work in accounting, there's going to be a lot of work needing to apply behavioral science in accounting and you're going to have work both in accounting firms, but also maybe from the likes of behavioral insights team and so on that's going to mm. uh, need that. And so it's a little bit similar to something like service design or something. It's, it's going to be really useful to have that existing knowledge. So it doesn't really matter if you're really deep in a career of, so let's say, something that's a little more specific that hasn't really clear behavioral science uh, fundamentals originally, you can still sort of apply that. Um, and then for the people that are really getting started, that are maybe studying right now, I think it's exciting. You can really do a lot of things right now. So what I would be really focusing on is just being very humble uh, to really have that mindset of, okay, even if I've studied for three or five years, there's still so much to learn. And mm -hmm. so one of the favorite books I have on the list, is, it's not the easiest read, but it's a really interesting read, is, is Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Yeah. And the book is about, okay, what makes a behavior happen, pretty much. And so it sounds that it shouldn't be that complicated. But then when you get into the real kind of weeds of it all, you realize mm -hmm. that, well, there's a lot of different things that could explain why behavior happens. From the kind of more behaviorist level of looking at a behavior and looking at the kind of stimuli that might cause the behavior to looking at the neurological level and biolo biological level and yeah. evolutionary level mm -hmm. and so on. And so I think just being curious and being open-minded and humble is probably the biggest, call it like the best qualities you can have within our field because there's always going to be more to learn. It's always going to be more to, mm. to, to discover and so on. And so having that curiosity, I think is very crucial. I think that's great. I, I do agree with that. I, I, I have one pushback and that is... Great, yeah. I, I, um, because I would say that I started to apply behavioral science as soon as I started to learn it. But you, oh. you, you said earlier, at the very beginning of the interview, um, you, you were walking around with this hammer and then you saw nails everywhere and then all of a sudden you realize, actually, there's loads of screws. And, and what I wonder is, um, oh. how long were you looking at everything as a nail before you realized it was a screw? And, and by that, what, what I mean by that, if that's oh. <laughs> a bit cryptic, is how do you avoid the, if you come across the Dunning-Kruger effect of, sure, of sure. you know, you get a bit of knowledge about that thing and then you start to apply it to everything and it doesn't fit. So how do you mm. do that in a way that you're learning and you're starting to experiment at an early stage without having to have loads of, you know, sophisticated um, education or, or, or whatever behind you, but you don't overdo it and, and apply things where they don't belong? Sure. Uh, really great pushback because that helps me clarify that as well. And that I think is very important to, um, well, I think I guess two things. So one thing is the Dunning-Kruger effect is a very likely thing to fall into in that once you learn a little bit, you think you know it all. And so I guess the, the, the biggest antidote there is just being humble. And so even though you're starting out and you're applying things, mm -hmm. you can still be aware that, okay, the things I'm applying, is not going to be, there's still much more to learn. There's still much more to apply, but this is my way to get started. If this is really something you're passionate about, mm -hmm. I'd rather people start applying things and learning from it than thinking that it's not for them at all. Yeah. Uh, and then, so second part of that is that it's very important to think about it as some form of a, scientific process and that it's worthless to experiment and try things on if you're not going to try to measure and see if it works. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you're very new to the field. As long as you're working with, so call it the scientific, <laughs> scientific method of having a hypothesis that, okay, I've learned this new nudge that if I tell people that nine out of 10 other people are doing it, they'd be more likely to do it as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to try to put that as a message on my, uh, on the, on the, let's say, uh, on the bathrooms to get people to clean up for themselves in the bathrooms at my office. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and maybe this is a very stupid example, but I'm just trying to come to that. It's going to be very important to see and measure like, well, um, is there some way for me to know if this has worked or not? 
And, and so you can have obviously in the beginning, if it doesn't really have a really big impact, it's okay if you don't have the best ways of measuring it. But especially if you're going out into the real world and you're gonna you know, test this on users or clients, mm. you're putting yourself in a big risk if you're not gonna be able to measure and see if, if your new, yeah. new thing works or not. So it helps to first of all know that obviously, okay, it works from research, so it should work for me as well. But that's not good enough. So you have to be open to the fact that even though that the research says that this work, and even though I read a book that says this work, yeah. this might be really bad for my clients. Mm-hmm. Just being honest about that, because you know you never know. You know sometimes things can backfire, and if you're not measuring that, if you're <laughs> if you're just going along and and, and not trying to mm-hmm. see and validate your your, your research, or <laughs> I guess call it this research, but 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 tests and trials. Um, it's going to lead you to possibly doing, um, yeah. yeah, both doing things that are not optimal, but also not learning from your mistakes. Again, coming back to learning from failure mm-hmm. and so on. And, and having that mindset, actually, before you even yeah. start, that, that failure is great because it's, it's where all the good information is. Um, yeah. so, so actually the way to avoid it, if I'm interpreting what you're saying right, is to have a good evaluation sort of strategy in mind. It doesn't have to be sophisticated, but it has to measure what you're doing to make sure that you're validating that it works in context. Yeah, that's where we're synthesizing. Great. Okay. I'm, I'm not known for being succinct, but I, I think I've got, <laughs> got down to that one. Um, great. I, and and um, lastly, um, Sam, if you want to tell people where they can go to find out about your, your work and, and uh, you a little bit more, um, you, your social media, LinkedIn, how, how can people get hold of you? Well, honestly, I feel like you've helped me plug my stuff quite well so far. So I don't know what more to add. I think you can check out my website, samuelsalsa.com. Mm-hmm. You can uh, definitely, I would recommend checking out Have a Weekly. Um, and um, what I'm always interested to hear, if this is someone already subscribing to Have a Weekly, mm-hmm. please reach out. Please let me know if something within, within the, the newsletter can be improved. Because that's what's also been part of the success so far is that I've got a lot of good feedback and I've asked for a lot of good feedback. And, and pretty much what I'm looking to do is just create the ultimate newsletter for people in our field and so Mm. um give it a try let me know what you think um you can always reach me on sam at samuelsalsa.com as well and that's links on my website and so on so yeah and linkedin as well i have um pretty big um uh, i would say content sharing there as well Uh, so linkedin can can be a good place to follow uh, both my work but also the stuff i share Mm -hmm. from around the, the field as well that's great. Sam, thank you very much for your time. It's been really great chatting with you. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of ground here, um, particularly from the industry side, because it's, it's good for us to get through uh, people who are involved at the public health, the policy and the academic side. But I, I, I think finding myself more, well, between those, I suppose, a little bit, but certainly trying to apply it on the industry side, even if it's in public health. Um, I'm really interested to talk to other people who are sort of in, in, you know, applying it at the real world uh, level that's what that's the whole reason for doing the show so i think it's it's great for, for that we got a chance to talk about that um i loved hearing about how you came to the habit weekly newsletter i think that's the one of the best ways for thing these you know the mother of all invention is is <laughs> the fact that there's a necessity there and you you sort of identified the necessity and then pulled this thing together that is, is helping loads of different people from all walks of of you know the industry and outside the industry i imagine um so Um, Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I think that the listeners will find this really useful. Thanks. Thanks, Stuart. I really enjoyed this. I'm sure we could have talked for many more hours (laughs) about this as well. Definitely. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, mate. Okay, just wanted to say thanks again to Sam there for a great interview. I'm sure that people will have found it really interesting to hear about where Habit Weekly came from and about how, how Sam approaches his work in, uh, in tech and around the world in helping people to, to design behaviour change and behavioural science-based interventions. Um, so uh, we'll be back again next month with Aline Hallsworth, who works at the Centre for Advanced Hindsight with Dan Ariely. So I'm really looking forward to conducting that interview. And since we're going to do this one 
in a couple of weeks' time means we'll be able to, to build the coronavirus stuff into the interview. So we'll get some context in the, in the normal show sense, but we'll also get uh, her take on the coronavirus. I know she's been doing a lot of interviews about it at the moment anyway. Um, so it, again, this is a great time for people. There, within all of this madness, there is opportunity here for people. If you want to go and um, check out what, what the BSPHN are doing, you can do that on bsphn.org.uk. If you want to join, you can do that for £25 or £10 if you're a student or, or not working. Um, and it's just a really good time for to connect with other people. So that's all from me. And I hope you're coping okay in the middle of all this stuff that's going on with coronavirus. Um, so stay safe, stay healthy, stay connected, uh, but most of all, stay home.